Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel 38. We've been making our way through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel have been, for their whole ministry, delivering one message to Jerusalem, and that is because of their sins that go beyond describing the Lord is going to deal with them by taking them into Babylonian captivity for the next 70 years. This happened in three different stages. Uh, it was complicated for, the, for those that were in Babylon already. This is where Ezekiel would have been in Babylon. Jeremiah was giving the same message in Jerusalem. But it was confusing because Jerusalem was not yet completely fallen. And as a result, there were false prophets that were going around saying, don't worry about a thing. Everything's going to be fine. God wouldn't think. It's inconceivable that Solomon's temple would be destroyed. It was just not in their thought process in any way, shape, or form. That can't happen. But then it finally did. And um, one guy made it out of Jerusalem alive, and he made it up to Babylon. He said, it's true. Everything that Ezekiel has been saying has come to pass. Solomon's temple is completely destroyed. We go from that mentality, all of Jeremiah, and most of Ezekiel, but now when we're getting to this portion of Ezekiel, the Lord wants to give them future hope of them coming back into the land. The portion of scripture that we read last week, the title of it was, Can a Nation Be Born in a Day? It comes from um, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8. It's a hypothetical question. Can a nation be born in a day? And um, that's exactly what happened. But not during this captivity. This is the Babylonian captivity, one nation. What we studied last week was uh, chapter 37. And basically, it's divided into two different stories. One about all these dead bones coming together that were dry and dead. And and the Lord said, can these bones live? And... uh, Uh, Ezekiel says, Lord, I don't know, you know. And he said, I want you to speak to them and prophesy. He prophesied and the bones began to come together. Sinew began to form on the bones, skin, blood vessels, and they stood up, but they had no breath. And the Lord said, now speak to the four winds and tell the winds to breathe upon them. And he did, and they had life. And he said, this is what I want you to tell the people, Ezekiel. Oh, Israel, this is you. You were dead. And you've been out of the land that has been desolate for many, many years, but I'm going to bring you back. And I've made the point several times that there is no other ethnic group in the world that has ever been out of its homeland for more than one or two generations without losing their national identity, except for the Jewish people. Wherever they went, they maintained... Um, the Sabbath. They would maintain um, their customs, tradition, right? So the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, I'm going to bring them back a second time. So he's making a distinction. Yes, he brought them back once during Ezekiel's time after 70 years. And then he said, but I'm going to do it again. And it's going to be in the latter years. And we're going to read that here again this morning. So, last week, a nation was born 69 years ago. A nation that was desolate. Um, There was basically swamp and wilderness and nothing really there. And over the last 69 years, it has turned into 
a beautiful place where I have friends right now visiting um, um, on, on uh, an Israeli tour. And that was last week. And so as I look at chapter 37, you can pretty much do this. You can check it off. Here's a Bible prophecy. Fulfilled. Now having said that, we're in chapter 38 as we make our way through the Bible. And our study this morning has not yet happened. But the goal for me playing Amir and JD, the Calvary guy from Hawaii, how can anybody be called to go to Hawaii? I want to know that. Why aren't they called to Appleton? That's what I want to know. Or, or Upper Michigan or places like that. It's always, yeah, the Lord called me to Hawaii. Yeah, with your surfboard. <laughs> anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the Lord needs the gospel there, even even though in the paradise that's there. But what we're about to study this morning has not yet happened. But hopefully before you're done, I've entitled this, How Close Are We? That as we read in Thessalonians, we are to know the times and the seasons. We are to be, you know, Jan Markell was saying not many churches talk about this. She's absolutely true. And unfortunately, um, the Bible colleges won't touch Bible prophecy with a 10-foot pole these days. It's, um, um, they're, I, I think, more interested in, in, in numbers than truth. And basically, people like to hear what the Lord can do for them. When the fact of the matter, my Bible says that the volume of the book is written about who? Jesus. The volume of the book is about him, not about me. I'm just a grateful guy that got saved and um, I'm a beggar who's found bread who just wants to share it. But it's not about me and it's not about you. Good place for an amen. But, but that's the mentality that's out there today. And most of the mega churches that you'll find, you'll find that their messages are geared around you and how you can have a better whatever. But what you really need to grow is faith that saves us by God's grace can only come through the teaching of the word. And the only way that we can really do it honestly is not to hopscotch here and there, but start at Genesis and go all the way through. And then you'll be able to say, like Paul, I've, I haven't shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, even the ugly stuff, even the hard stuff. And that's what we're called to do. Now, having said that, um, we are finishing Ezekiel in the next couple of weeks. Because after we get through 38 and 39, Ezekiel War, 40 through 48 deals with the millennium. And then we're done with the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to go into Daniel. And we're going to teach through Daniel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But I don't teach Daniel unless I can teach Revelation at the same time because you can't understand Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. So what we're going to do is continue Sunday morning going verse by verse through Daniel, but on Wednesday evening I'm going to be teaching through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to have them both end at the same time, so that when we're done with Daniel and ready to go into the, um, the minor prophets, then we'll go back and, and um, continue uh, our way through the, through the scriptures. So with that being said... Um, Paul has already read our text for us this morning. Um, we are looking at the stage being set 
for a war that's going to be fought, but um, the fighting and the defender of Israel is none other than God himself. Now, this has not happened directly since the Exodus um, where, or the flood, where it was the Lord himself that brought the judgment. Um, the nations are going to be looking on. They won't be involved. They're simply asking questions. So as we get into it, there isn't anything in place. We've been waiting for years for Turkey to decide which side they're on, for this coalition of nations to come together. But now the stage is set, and what Amir and J.D. were talking about, and the next event to happen is the rapture of the church. Uh, Damascus might be destroyed, Isaiah 17.1. That could happen as a wake-up call for those that are kind of sitting on the fence. Um, but let's dive right in and look at, instead of reading our text, we're going to be doing it anyway. So <clears throat> let's go to Ezekiel 38, and I'm going to just deal with Gog and Magog and why we believe that this is a reference to Russia. And let's read the first four verses. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, and Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army and horses and horsemen and all um, splendor. Uh, splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields and all of them handling swords. So we're introduced to a person whose name is Gog and of the land of Magog. And I'm quoting from um, uh, a Hebrew scholar, let me find his name here, Jesenias would be his name. And um, so I'm quoting from him as he talks about Gog and Magog. Who is he? Gog is a word for ruler, meaning roof, which actually means the man on top. I can't think of a better name for a dictator than Gog. If he's not on top, he's not a dictator. And if he's not, and if he is on top, he is a dictator. Magog means head, which in the Hebrew word rosh, which means head. Dean Stanley, in his History of Eastern Church, published half a century ago, has a quote founded on uh, Jesenias, the great Hebrew scholar, to the effect that the word rosh should be Russia, Then Dean Stanley adds that this is the only reference to a modern nation in the entire Old Testament. We'll talk more about another possibility of another later. This is indeed remarkable. Bishop Lower made the statement that Rosh, taken as a proper name in Ezekiel, signifies the significance of Scythian from which the modern word Russia derives their names. You see, Russia was first called Muscovia, derived from Meshach. Now, Ivan IV, the Tsar of Russia, who was called Ivan the Terrible, 
came to the Muscovite throne in 1533. He assumed the title of Tsar, which was the first time the title was used. I'm sure you detect that the names Meshach and Tubal certainly sound like Moscow or Tobolsky, which is over in Siberia. This uh, linguistic phenomena certainly leads us to believe that Ezekiel is talking about Russia in this passage. So as we set the stage for this particular study, he's against, now I don't ever want the Lord to say, Dwight, I am against you, <laughs> not the creator of the universe. You know, the Lord says, no, I'm for you. And we were in men's prayer yesterday, and uh, we were happy in John 17. And that's really the Lord's prayer. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he says, now I'm going to pray for this group of people who are going to believe when the disciples preach the gospel, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that come to me. I'm praying for them too. Isn't it comforting to know that the Lord is personally praying for you? That's what, it, that's what he says. And so we find that he's for us and not against us, but he's against the land of Russia. I went to find a book yesterday that uh, I couldn't find. I found this one instead by Chuck Colson. And um, for you guys not being around long enough, Colson was, uh, they called him Nixon's hatchet man. When Nixon got impeached, it was Chuck Colson that, that uh, took a lot of the heat. But the long and short of it was he got born again. And he started one of the greatest prison ministries in the country. But in the introduction to his book, he has Alexander Stolzenitsyn Stolzenitsyn, uh, do the foreword for his book. Now, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's from Russia. And he he writes about the Russian gulag. These would be concentration camps. And just how horrible they were and how much they hated Christianity. What's your point, Dwight? Well, why is the Lord against so much Russia? Why is he calling that nation out for judgment? Well, during the years of Stalin and and the Russian gulag, 70 million, six or seven million during the um, Holocaust, but people are so unaware just how brutal communism was against Christianity, against Judaism, and the Lord allowed that to build and build and build. It took 400 years for it to build before he set the children of Israel into the promised land. It says, until their iniquity was full, then he brought the children of Israel in. So now the Lord has finally gotten to the point where it says, you're not getting away with anything. And by the way, nobody gets away with anything. Anybody want to say amen to that? Either you do something that's sinful and you repent of it, and the Lord says, I'm faithful and just to forgive you. Uh, But if you don't repent, know this. Every thought, every um, lie, every impure thing you've ever dreamed about doing, it's all being written down. In Revelation 20, it says, and the books were opened, and people were judged according to the things by the works that were written in the book. Man, I don't want a book written about me, B.C., (laughs) at all. And also, if it's works or grace, I want all the grace, Lord, that you're willing to give me. And we learn more about that grace here. But 
He's against Rosh. And um, there's Calvary chapels in Russia today. Uh, They're limited what they can and can't do. But I think it's going back to Alexander Stolzhenitsyn's personal conversion story and the truths that he told about what happened. So in the first four verses, what we have here is a man who is the head. And I, I believe with all my heart is Putin. I believe he, is, he was the head of the KGB. Uh, I believe that he's very shrewd. I believe he's playing both sides of the coin. And he happens to be settling himself in right now in um, Syria. And I'll talk about more of that a little bit. So in verses 1 through 4, what have we got so far? We have identity of a man. I call him Putin. We have an identity of a nation. I call it Russia. What I'm going to put on the board next on the map is the Begog invasion, the map, and then we're going to read the other nations that are involved. So here's the map. And with it, now let's read verses 5 and 6. These are the nations that are evidently equipped by Russia. They are Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them, all of them with shields and helmets, Gomer and all of its troops in the house of Togarma from the far north. I'll come back to that in a bit. And its troops and many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. Um, In other words, the word there is actually a supplier for them. Iran is getting all of its, they just got some T-90 tanks from, um, from Russia. And so what we have here is a list of nations. Well, so let's go through them as we look at the map. The first one is Persia. Well, 80 years ago, modern-day Iran was called Persia. So that's the first one. Then you have Kush, that's Ethiopia and Sudan. You have Put, that's Libya. That's where Colonel Gaddafi was in power. You have Gomer, which is Turkey. Uh, some have identified as parts of Eastern Europe. You have Beth Togarma, Turkey again, also said by other experts to include Armenia and the Turkish-speaking people of the Asia Minor. So what do we have? We have a coalition of nations. And the Lord says that he's going to put a hook in the jaw, verse 4, I'm going to put a hook into your jaw and I'm going to bring you into this land. So the hook is set in Russia and he's going to draw them in. The question is, why is he going to draw them in and what is their motive for being there? I'll suggest to you now, as far as Putin is concerned, it's more for plunder. And as far as Iran is concerned, You'd have to, and Elijah Abraham will be speaking in depth on this when he is here in September for our prophecy conference. The real war that's going on between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Both Iran and Saudi Arabia are the same, and they're fighting over um, who's going to take that branch of the Sunni-Shiite power. Um, And so they have religious reasons, so to speak. They have one thing in common, both the Sunni and the Shiite, and that is their hatred of the people and the nation of Israel. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and the war that's been going on there has been going on for a long, long time. 
The game changer where for years I've taught this book, Turkey was always trying to get into the EU, and yet they're very much mentioned here. And so I'd always say, this cannot happen, not until Turkey is fully lined up with Russia. And they've been trying for years to get into the EU. Now I'll just quote something I got out of, uh, I, I googled this week. It says, in the case of Turkey, and I pronounced this wrong and I was corrected between the first and second service, I'll just say it right. In the case of Turkey's president, Erdogan, that's it, Erdogan, has thrown himself on the side of Russia as Turkey relations with both Israel and the United States have soured. In August of 2016, Erdogan praised Putin as his dear friend in a visit to St. Peter's, uh, St. Petership that saw the two leaders pledging to strengthen their ties. Uh, Turkey's half-century-old EU membership bid, in other words, they want in, uh, is also currently tottering on the brink of collapse. And after the European Union legislature asked the, the bloc to freeze membership negotiations with Turkey over the government's heavy-handed crackdown following a failed coup last July. I don't know if you remember that or not. But that was pretty much it. No longer could they be a part of the EU, so they're going to throw their eggs in, in with Russia. The last sentence here is Turkish... President uh, Erdogan indicated in a recent interview that he was fed up with making, waiting for the European Union to accept Turkey as a member state, indicating that he would be willing to consider joining the Russian-led Shanghai Corporation organization as an alternative to the Western bloc. Now the stage is set. Now all, the, all these, uh, and then we've watched the fall of Gaddafi. We watched the fall of Saddam Hussein, these dictators. And the focal point is this other dictator, Assad, who's in Syria, which is the headquarters for terrorism in the world today. Some say it's Iran, but it's really Damascus. And so we're waiting um, for an event to take place, and that is a prophecy also. Isaiah 17, verse 1 says, The city Damascus the oldest inhabited city in the world is going to be destroyed and never inhabited again. And we're waiting for that to happen. And if you saw that little article that I read when I first came out, well, they're shooting right now into Israel. And all they have to do is have one of those little dirty bombs land uh, in, in Israel somewhere. Bye-bye, Damascus. They, they have a saying in Israel. They call it, they call it the Solomon, the Samson complex. And if you know anything about Samson, how he died, um, he died taking his enemies with him. And so when you could join the army and you get sworn in, they have this mentality, never again. Never again. So if you think you're taking us out, you're going to come down with us. And believe me, they have the capacity to do this. Now, don't get that confused with our Bible study this morning because man is not going to be involved with this war. God's going to show himself in this war. So what do we have so far? We have the stage set. We have all the nations lined up for it to happen. As of the news this morning, we have fighting going on. 
with Russia, I mean with um, um, uh, Syria and Israeli jets, and now Turkey's on board. Well, here's the irony of of Turkey. Uh, When we teach Revelation, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what do you have? Seven letters to seven churches. Do you know that every one of those seven churches would be in the boundaries of Turkey today? And they're all within 80 miles of each other? It'd be like going from here to Milwaukee, and then you have those seven letters and seven churches, they're all in Turkey. Now, I've been to four of them. And the only two we're seeing besides Patmos is um, Ephesus and also Pergamos. It has a lot of the ruins that are still very, very much intact. Uh, not so with the other ones there. But the irony that Turkey is the one that finally gets on board that comes against Israel is actually where the early church actually started. All right, verses 8 and 9 is going to pinpoint the time of when this is going to take place. Verse 8, after many days, you will be visited in when? The latter years. You will come into the land that was brought back from the sword, gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate. Now this is why this is not the Ezekiel returning from Babylon. These people are coming back after many years, and now the land has become completely desolate. They will be brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwelling safely. You will ascend coming like a cloud, covering the land with, with a cloud, you and your troops, and many people with you. So now it tells us, if you look at verse 16, instead of saying here that it'll be in the latter Years in verse eight. If you go to verse sixteen, it says, "I will be." It will be in the latter days. So in both places here, this war will be um, taking place at a time that we call um, the latter days or the last times. All right. I need for you to turn with me to Matthew twenty-four. We were there last week, but again. Without setting dates, that's not our point, but to understand the times and the seasons. And Paul clearly, let me say this, don't think that if you're a young Christian you shouldn't be hearing this stuff. When Paul went to Thessalonica, he was only there for three weeks. And in three weeks he taught every major doctrine including eschatology, which is a study of last day things, including the rapture, including telling them what to look for as for signs in the last days, in which you would have to have a whole pretty good grasp of the entire scriptures. Three weeks? Come on, Paul, lighten up on these young believers. But yet he held them accountable. He says, look, I told you guys this before. And that's why he had to write Second Thessalonians. All right, and, and this would have been Jesus' last week, Matthew 24. And sometimes when, when people realize that time is short, you want to say the things that are really important. And the disciples come to him in verse 3, and they want to know specifically. They say, Lord, just tell us when are these things going to be and what will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. What I want to point out here is the word is side, it's plural, a singular, not plural. It's not signs. The disciples want to know one sign, not a whole bunch of signs. So what does the Lord do? He gives them a bunch of signs. <laughs> you know that there's, one of them is earthquakes. And just for a side study, in the last two months, uh, earthquake happenings have been off the chart. And you can just Google it, and I'm finding it very, very interesting how many of them are actually coming back. But here he talks about famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, nation rising against nation. Those are signs, but it's not the sign. The sign, when it gets right down to it, oh, by the way, I should say one of the biggest signs is false prophets and false teaching. And I believe it has a lot to do with people leaving the word of God, teaching it um, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and taking a verse out of context and somehow making it you a better person. And um, Judy and I, down, and it's so tough down in the Phoenix area because they got like five, six, seven just Christian TV stations. Every one is worse than the one before. And I look at this and I go, why would anybody want to be a Christian? And it's so easy to see through what they're really working for. I'm, I'm tempted sometime to come out dressed like one of these guys and, and be one of those motivational speakers just to entertain you for one Sunday so you can see what it's like out there in a lot of the places. I told my wife I was going to do that, and she says, no, you're not. (laughs) But it's nothing more than motivational speaking. And at the bottom of the line, there's a sales pitch to buy their book or their latest series. And we have a special deal for you this week. That's what we're up against. And so... When the Lord um, talked about it, the last days in the church of Laodicea, which one of the brothers made reference to, he didn't mention this. The church of Laodicea said, I'd rather have you hot or cold. But if you're going to be lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. But he really meant vomit. In other words, it's nauseating. And um, I hope we're here because we want the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. Amen? I have my opinions. You have yours. But if we just stick to this and not add to it or take away from it, we're on pretty safe ground. And you will grow and you will mature and you will have a, a, a big picture. And you, we should be the ones that are equipped to talk to our friends about what's really going on in the world today. And just how late it really is. But unless we have Bible studies like we're having this morning, I'm not picking this out. We just happen to be in Ezekiel chapter 38 this morning. And next week, because we did 39 verse by verse last Wednesday, in order for you to get that, you have to get the DVD. Uh, We'll finish the book of Ezekiel, because 40 to 48 is one subject. It's all about the millennium. And we'll be doing that in two Sundays. So, um, Matthew 24, what is the sign? The sign is, in verse 32, now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer's here. 
So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. He's talking about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. They've been there for 69 years. And they've taken this desolate place and they've literally turned it into the Garden of Eden. And I'm getting to that in just a little bit. In other words, Israel went from nothing and now it's budding. And um, um, the list, I'll, I'll go through the list in just a bit here, but I gotta go back to Ezekiel and talk about Sheba and Dedan before we do. So what do we have so far? We have the, the players that are gonna come against Israel. Uh, the war is breaking out. We read in verse 10, let's pick it up verse 10, thus says the Lord, on that day it will come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind. I believe he's thinking about Putin right here. And he will make an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling with, without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And they're going to take plunder. That's really not Iran's main goal. It's more of the issue of the Shiites and the Sunnis. But Russia, on the other hand, is more interested in having warm water ports because they don't have them. And this is probably a good time to sneak this in. Their main export is oil and natural gas. They're the main pipeline to Europe. Most of Europe's natural gas and oil comes from Russia. They really haven't had any competition. That is until just recently with Israel. So when it talks about an evil plan uh, coming in to take plunder and booty um, to the places that are again inhabited, a people gathered from the nations, so it can't be Ezekiel, these are from all over the world. They've acquired livestock and goods. They dwell in the midst of the land. So now, here they come. But now there's surrounding nations that are watching this happen, and one is called Sheba and Dedan. Names of cities in Saudi Arabia today, but also that's what Saudi Arabia used to be called. So Saudi Arabia is sitting on the sidelines, and there's this other a country called Tarshish. Most Bible teachers believe that's Britain. And the offspring are the young lions of Britain. So here's the question that everybody asks about the young lions. Is this a reference to the United States of America? Because we come out of Britain, so does Canada. So are we one of the young lions here? I would say emphatically that Sheba and Dedan... 19 of um, the ones that took down the Twin Towers came from Saudi Arabia. You can't carry a Bible in Saudi Arabia. You can't have a Bible study in Saudi Arabia. Um, But they're not interested in this war. They're simply asking the question. Along with, I believe, Tarshish is Britain. 
You're asking me, do I think that the lions in the young lions will say, have you come to take plunder? Have you come to take booty? And I sort of lean to the side that, yes, I believe that is us. Am I dogmatic about it? Absolutely not. But I am about Sheba and Dedan, because I know who they are biblically. And you're on solid ground by saying, they're not involved with this war. They're just asking the question, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing in the land? Did you pick up on it when, when the two guys were talking about it? Why isn't anybody saying, Russia, what, what are you, why are you planting yourself in, in, um, in Iran? I'm going to put this up on the screen right now. It's called uh, Israel's Navy Officer. Russia is here to stay in the region. Let's just get that one up real quick. Here it is. And um, you know, here's somebody asking the question. But they're there to stay. And they're there to stay because um, they sort of got a hook in their jaw. God wants to judge them, and he wants to judge them on the mountains of Israel. How do I get them there? Well, what are, what's the booty? Well, you read on that in verse 13, there are silver and gold, livestock, goods, and great plunder. Israel has great plunder? They've only been there for 69 years could they actually become that prosperous and wealthy in that period of time? And the answer to that question is, absolutely yes. Just within the last 10 years, um, they discovered a natural gas off uh, the coast of Haifa in the Mediterranean. It's called the uh, uh, Leviathan Gas Field. It has an estimated 16 trillion cubic feet, or 450 billion cubic meters of natural gas. Russia, at that, up till this time, really had no competition to supply Europe. My last trip to Israel, I drove by where they were bringing it ashore. There was a great big pier that led out to where they were harvesting it out in the Mediterranean, and they're already exporting it to Jordan. So that's already up and running. Don't you think Russia would like to eliminate that competition? Or better yet, take it over. Well, then there's the oil that's just recently been discovered on the Golan Heights. Steven Spielman, in the early 1980s, actually wrote a book about discovering oil in Israel. And it's a very compelling book. And so when, I, when we would travel, I'd always talk to my Israeli tour guides, and I said, have you discovered the oil yet? And I said, God gave us olives. He gave the oil to the Arabs or something like that. And the fact of the matter is, they have recently, and the, the owner of Zion Oil, Gas, and Website actually did this research because of Steven Spielman's book. He was persuaded, you know, that the Rockefellers... Um, um, are wealthy because they read of the um, um, oh, what are the, the oil pits that, they, that actually surfaces to the ground. They found it down by the Dead Sea. I hate getting old. You have senior moments and you want to grab that word and it's just not there. But it's actually oil that comes up and they, they found some of these and they just said there must be oil in, in the Middle East. And they began to invest in that area. 
That's one of the reasons the Rockefellers are so, so wealthy. But recently discovered by this guy who read Steven Spielman's book that they found on the Golan Heights 350 meters of strata thick of this high-quality oil. The average discovery of a strata field of oil is 20 to 30 meters thick. This is 10 times larger than the average oil field. It will make Israel self-sufficient to the point where it can now even export it. You don't think that the main resource in Russia right now, what I heard on the news yesterday, is the price just dropped and it's affecting Russia's economy. How much more of a hook to come down? And I just showed you, they're here to stay. What are they staying there for? Well, um, I believe a lot of it is because that's what they have in mind. Potash in the Dead Sea exceeds 30 million tons per year. It's used for fertilizer. For years, it was the main export of Israel. And, of course, from that, you get all the rich emollients. Um, the best cosmetics in the world come from the Dead Sea. It's called the Hava. They have plants there. Um, as far as agriculture, turn with me to um, chapter 36 of Ezekiel. And um, let's pick it up in verse 33 talking about being brought back into the land. Verse 33 says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from your iniquity, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land will be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations which are left around shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places, planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I, the Lord, will do it. Well, he either did or didn't. Seventy years ago, swamp, wilderness. That's what they had. What do they have today? Over 40 different types of fruit grown. It's the world leader by its size in agriculture. Only 20% of the land is usable for farming, and yet they're the fourth producer of fruit in the world today, a state the size of New Jersey. So the question is, has he taken the land? It's a prophecy. Has he taken a land that was desolate, and has he turned it into a Garden of Eden? Oh, yeah. Um, Reforestation in Israel, when the mountains were barren, you go to Israel now, there's forests. They have oak trees. They have, um, they have pines. They have my favorite, which is an olive tree, from which you get Israeli olives. And um, they're off the chart with their creativity and how they can just, believe it or not, they actually have Tomatoes that they grow that are already salted. What I just said is true. It doesn't have anything to do with the Bible study, really, but you can go to Israel and have a salted tomato that's already grown. Their irrigation is set up in such a way that they have long black pipes so they waste no water. They'll put a hole wherever that plant is, and only water will come out at that spot. They're very sophisticated in their, in their agriculture. As far as their technology... They're second to nobody in the world. 
They're the most developed sector, the highest number of scientists, technicians per capita, 140 per 10,000 employees. In other words, they're at the top of the charts. Um, Three and a half million tourists visited Israel in 2013. I have friends there right now touring the country. It's been going up 22% every year. Tourism is a major, major industry in Israel. Um, Diamonds, uh, the diamond capital of the world is Israel as far as cutting them and polishing them and distributing them, exporting them out. They're there with Belgium and India. And that's their resources. And uh, as I kiddingly said last week, they're the cream of the crop in the entertainment world. And um, um, who knows who Bobby Zimmerman is? Who's Bobby Zimmerman? His name is Bob Dylan. You can call me Zimmy or you can call me Ray, but you got to serve somebody. <laughs> well, his name is really Bobby Zimmerman. And like a lot of Jews fearing anti-Semitism, they changed their name. So Dylan is Dylan. And Captain Kirk is Captain Kirk. He's a Jew. And so is Spock. They're all Jews. And a lot of, a lot of people are extremely jealous of the wealth and the business savvy that the Jewish people have. And the, one of the reasons for anti-Semitism is that they are so successful. It's because they're God's chosen people and he gave them better brain cells. Deal with it. And, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of bad that, that because they're not saved. A lot of them in Hollywood that has come out. But much of Hollywood is all about um, the Jews that are are ahead of a lot of these companies. All right, my point was simply this. Russia is coming in to a land that was once desolate and now is so prosperous with its, its democracy there. And they're coming in to take this spoil. All right. Try to start to wind things up here. Um. Therefore, verse 14, Son of Man, prophesy and say to Putin, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? And then you will come from your north place. I'm going to put a map up on the board. So where this war is coming from is coming, here it is right here. That is one straight line from Israel to Moscow. Look at how straight it is. You will come from the far north. You and many peoples with you. Who are the many peoples? The ones that we just read about. Iran, Persia, Turkey, Put, Tugarma. Riding on horses and great companies and a mighty army, you will come against my people like a cloud to cover the land. It will be when? In the latter days. And I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me before I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. God's going to get the glory for this one because God's going to be the one doing the fighting. For the first time, the church age is winding down, and what Amir said about the rapture couldn't be more important to talk about, because it's the next thing that's going to happen. Do we know the day of the hour? No. Do we know the times of the seasons? Oh, yeah. Signs are all over the place if you know what to, if you know what to look for. Verses 17 to 23 is the battle itself. And we read here 
that um, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants and the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it came to pass at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel that the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. And I'm thinking he hasn't forgotten one person who suffered in one of those um, gulag concentration camps. He's remembering it all. And now it's all coming up in his anger. For my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field all creeping things that creep on the earth, and the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains will be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. So as they're coming down, the first thing that happens is an earthquake, and it affects everything in that region. And it's going to be a great earthquake that's um, probably going to be felt worldwide. And then he says, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout my mountain, says the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. In other words, he's going to cause confusion. They're going to start fighting against each other. And I will bring them to judgment with pestilence and with bloodshed. I will rain down on him and his troops and many peoples who are with him, flooding rain Great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I need to read that again. Because the Lord said, I'm the one that's going to rain down rain. And then, great hailstones with fire and brimstone. Sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. You go, how could something like that happen? Has that happened before? Yeah, it sure did. Happened when the Lord says, I've had this much and I will take no more. And now my fury has come up. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. To me, this verse right here, as I've said many times, is repeated 54 times in the book of Ezekiel. Then they will know that I am the Lord. But this is the one that I think it's pointing to the most. Because now, Israel and the world has seen that there's a God that's going to fight for Israel. Man had nothing to do with this. Now, I'm looking for my book on Chuck Colson because I wanted to quote Alexander Stolzenison. I couldn't find it. But I looked up and I saw the one by Joel Rosenberg called The Ezekiel Option. And I thought, huh, I'm going to pull it out and thumb through it. I don't know Joel well, but I do know him. Um, we were on a trip when he had eight buses and we were in Israel at the same time with him. Um, we were touring separately, but we, we got together. And then we ran into him two years ago in Netanya. He was having a business meeting. And uh, this, is, this is a novel. And um, basically, it's laying out the building up to this event as the tensions are rising in the Middle East. Our president, who in this book his name is Dolan, and... Um, his uh, chief of staff is a born-again Christian who has a wife named Ruth who is not born again. And so now we're getting ready. 
the part of the book that's just happened is Russia has just launched a nuclear warhead from Siberia, and they're tracking it. And so I'll pick it up with the part where the earthquake had ended, but a new chapter has just opened. So we just read about the earthquake. But after the earthquake, what happens? Now there's fire and brimstone that's coming down, and God is interceding for his people. So Joel puts it in novel form, and I read it for two reasons. One, it gives a hypothetical, this is probably how it could unfold, but more importantly, the effect that it has on somebody who's not saved and born again. So um, the earthquake is over. They're tracking this nuke from Russia. And the conversation is, in the blink of an eye, the computer track of the Russian ICBM just disappeared. The president, whose name is Doran, saw it too, as did uh, the rest of, of, the, of the staff that was there. They were aghast, unsure what, what had just happened, unsure what to do next. The president says, somebody tell me what's going on. And uh, Mordine worked the phones uh, starting with the National Military Command Center at the Pentagon. He said, sir, Moscow's been hit. He told Dolan, all right, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to come back. Now I'm going to read, go back to chapter 39. And this is a continuing thought. There was no breaks in the verses here. Verse 1, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and lead you and bring you up from the far north and bring you up against the mountains of Israel. And here, if you have the New King James, the wording is a little different. It says, I will leave but a sixth of you. And now we're getting down into the nitty-gritty numbers. In other words, five-sixths of this invading army is wiped out. One-sixth of them hightails it back to where they came from But then in verse 3, it says, I will knock the bow out of your right hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your left hand. If you do a word study on the word bow, it can easily be translated launcher. And the one for arrow can easily be translated in the Hebrew as missile. So you could actually read this. Here's a a man living 2,500 years ago trying to explain 21st century technology. How would you describe it? It should read more like this. I will knock the launcher out of your left hand and cause the missiles to fall out of your right hand. Now the question hypothetically in in Joel's book here is what happened to the nuke? It's no longer there. And so now I'm going back to the story where he says, um, we were watching the ICBM and it just disappeared. Well, they just had his rockets knocked out of his right hand, and the Lord did it. They were aghast, unsure what just happened. Somebody tell me what's going on. And so they call the Pentagon and uh, said, Sir, Moscow's been hit. And so that's what the next verse says, verse 6, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastland. God is going to send the judgment right on that nation. And surely it will come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that this is the day which I have spoken. And he talks about the Lord sending fire 
on the enemies of, of Israel. The president, he told Dolan, it's been hit. Moscow's been hit. Tehran, too. We're getting reports from, from all over. But how? What happened? We never fired. Then that's what the White House wants to know. The Pentagon is telling the president they've detected no launches out of Israel or anywhere else in the world, just the Russian launch out of Siberia. But everyone everyone still thinks you ordered a massive nuclear counterstrike. But I didn't, the president said. And then he turned and he looked at uh, uh, his, his chief of staff. Then he goes on to say that NORAD was tracking thousands of missiles. Uh, What else should they call them? Striking Russia, Iran, and every coalition country that was gathered against Israel. The computer showed no heat plumes, no launching warnings of any kind, only fiery projectiles entering the Earth's atmosphere and and hurtling toward um, those nations. Uh, Costello was one of the um, guys on the team in Washington, watched in stunning silence as a satellite feed showed every nuclear missile silo and military base being hit one after another. Iran and Libyan military sites and government buildings were obliterated in a moment of his eye. The same seemed to be true of every country aligned with Russia. One by one, the militaries of the entire coalition were being destroyed. And I could read on and on. It's a novel, but I think you get the point. Now, with all this timing and information, and um, we basically say, so what do we do with all this, Dwight? And I'm glad you asked that question this morning. So let's finish it up by going to uh, Luke chapter 21. We've already read the parable of the fig tree. In 39, 29 through 33 is the parable of the fig tree again. Basically, exactly what Matthew 24 said. When Israel becomes a nation, all these things are going to happen. Well, one of the things that's going to happen is what we call the Magog War. Now, I just have a simple question. Either we look at the world scene... One more article, Iran vows to um, take the Golan Heights. So bring that one up. And um, I want to begin to close with just this simple question. Either we see the world stage set up exactly as the Bible says it is, or we don't, right? Fair enough. Either it is or it isn't. And all I want you to do is be honest, to be a Berean, Do your own homework. See if these things are true. And if they are, then you can put yourself in a category that we are to know the times and the seasons. And if we do know the times and the seasons, then what should we be about? Well, knowing that Israel is a miracle, number one, and Jesus said that all prophecy will be fulfilled, that generation. So now let's pick it up where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, and 33, but my word will not pass away. And then he speaks to us. He says, I want you to take heed to yourself, 
lest you become weighed down with carousing. Now, what's carousing? I know what carousing is. I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yesterday was St. Patty's Day, or the day before. What do you do in Oshkosh on St. Patty's Day? Well, you get up at 10 o'clock in the morning. You start drinking green beer till you can't drink anymore. And you pass out somewhere. That's called carousing. And that was just a special day. Any other time when we did it every Friday and Saturday night. And we lived in the world. Call it what you want to. Carousing, hitting the bars, bar jumping, whatever. That's what we did. I'm not going to confess any more than that. (laughs) And then, unless you get weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and there's so many cares that we could get caught up in, and that day come upon you unexpected. In other words, we're so caught up with everything else that we're missing the forest for the trees. And some of the most major prophetic events that we've ever seen in our lifetime are happening right before our eyes. And, and um, we get caught up with the snares of the world. Verse 35, for it will come to pass on all those who dwell on the face of the earth as a snare. So what are we to do? Watch therefore and pray that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the Bible gives us instruction. What are we to do? Watch and pray. Guys, Paul got up here earlier. He said we're having a stake in studies. That's a guy thing. No girls allowed, right? The girls have their own little ditty that they do. But uh, there's a stake. But everybody here has a buddy that you're praying for. And it's so easy to say, you know, why don't you come on out? We're getting together with some of my friends. We're going to have a Bible teaching from the Calvary Chapel pastor, uh, Donna Madison. Joshua here is going to be giving his testimony. They're sort of new in the fellowship, and I want people to get to know Joshua a little bit better. But more importantly, it sets in an environment that's not threatening, and uh, they can hear you know, a guy's story. Uh, but these are the things that we need to start taking seriously about our loved ones and realize I prayed with a woman um, yesterday. Um, she has stage four prostate cancer, uh, not prostate, um, what? Uh, stage four, it was the di- digestive, but it's spread all over the place. And um, they called me by mistake. They, don't, they said, we've got to start going back to church. And they only went four times, but they went to Calvary Bible. Now, this happens all the time. They'll call Calvary Bible, but it's really Calvary Chapel. They'll call Calvary Chapel, but it's really Calvary Bible. But I ended up there, and I, and I just hit it off with the family. And um, um, I saw this poor woman in just unbelievable pain. And uh, they wanted me just uh, to pray for her. So we went in there and prayed. The thing that amazes me is we pray for people all the time. But when I was praying for this woman and her pain, the Lord was just there. Now, I know the Lord is with me at all times. But I want to say that the Lord was there. And I was very aware that the Lord was there. But my prayer was that they were aware that the Lord was there. I didn't know. I never asked. 
They just asked for my card afterwards. And uh, that's, the, that's the fact of the matter. I, whenever I'm involved with a situation like that, I call it a reality check. That's a reality check. What does that mean? It means we're here so short. And I can't believe I'm as old as I am, and that 40 years has gone by just like that. I can't believe it. I think I'm 26. That's what my brain tells me. My body tells me a whole nother story. But what are we to do as we see all this stuff happening? Pray, watch. Have Bible studies that talk about, yeah, it's really happening. Let's be honest. If it's not not happening, then we can say it's not happening. For years I said it's not happening because Turkey's not in the picture. It's not happening. Turkey's in the picture. It's happening. They had a missile fight last night north of Jerusalem. So this could all hit the fan this year just like the guys were saying. So we are to pray. Why? To be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. This man who was uh, defense minister, had a wife whose name was Ruth, and she'd been witness to her, her whole life. And I'll close this morning as these events unfold, what happened to Ruth, and we will end. Um, judgment is falling all over. And Ruth, this is uh, the gal's husband who is saved and she's not, She cowered under a table. And what I'm about to read, if you're not saved and you haven't given your life to Christ, I would call this a sinner's prayer. The walls were crumbling, beams crashed down from the ceiling, electrical wires sizzled and popped and sparkled in the dark. She screamed for help, but no one could hear her. She could barely hear herself Something smashed into the table right above her head. Terrified, she cried out in the darkness, Lord Jesus, forgive me. For a moment, she was startled by her own words. She had not said, protect me, not save me. She cried, Lord, forgive me. And in that moment, she suddenly knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that what John had told her her whole life was true. She knew the judgment of God had begun, and more than physical protection, more than a, than a peaceful feeling of security, she knew she needed forgiveness. She suddenly realized she was in danger of dying without ever accepting Christ's free gift of love and forgiveness. What's more, she knew that the only thing stopping her from getting right with God was her stubborn, foolish pride. And there was no more time for that. Weeping now, as her world crashed down around her, Ruth opened her heart to God. Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm so sorry for not coming to you sooner. Forgive me, Lord, for everything. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. And thank you for raising from the dead to give me eternal life. Please come into my life. Be my Savior and my Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And show me how to follow you. And let me be with you forever, please. Amen. And in that instant, her life changed. The terror was suddenly gone. And in its place was an overwhelming sense of peace that surpassed any possible human understanding. 
and it began to dawn on her that nothing she knew would ever be the same again. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we look at the signs of the times and we make our way through your word, the bottom line is, are we born again? Are we saved? We can know all these facts and have all the history and know it all. But it doesn't mean a thing because someday people are going to come to you and they say, Lord, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other thing. And he'll look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew who you were. Lord, we don't ever want to be counted in that number. It's not about what we do, but it's about who we know. And Lord, we want to know you in a personal way. So in closing this morning, we we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and uh, for setting us free. But also, Lord, help us be wise as serpents as we share these truths. Help us do it in the spirit of love. We just give you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.